Hello and welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast and today we are actually recording live at the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress 2016 in London. Today we will be recording two linked podcasts both looking at the complex topic of malingering. This first podcast will focus on the process of clinical assessment and then the second one will go on to look at the issues around medico-legal reporting. I'm very pleased today to be joined by the authors of these papers in BJ Psych Advances, Dr Derek Tracy and Professor Keith Ricks. Derek, Keith, welcome. So Derek Tracy is a consultant psychiatrist at Oxley's NHS Foundation Trust and he's also BRC Research Fellow at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience in London. As well as these roles, he is also the lead author of the monthly Kaleidoscope column in the British Journal of Psychiatry. Keith Ricks is an honorary forensic consultant psychiatrist at Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust and also the visiting professor of medical jurisprudence at the University of Chester. Thank you both very much for joining me today. So I think malingering in some ways goes to the heart of one of the key philosophical dilemmas of psychiatry. And uh, despite advances in biological or psychiatric research, we still rely heavily on phenomenology to make many diagnoses. And I think the uh, anxiety that this highlights is actually demonstrated in the seminal study by Rosenhan, which was published in Science in 1973, uh, called On Being Sane in Insane Places. And there's a really great quote by Rosenhan in your paper that encapsulates this, that says, if sanity and insanity exist, how shall we know them? So I'd just like to start by asking you, what is malingering? Is it a mental illness, and how does it differ from the related concepts, like factitious disorder? Derek, if I can ask you to start. Thank you. Well, malingering is not a mental illness. So from that point of view, one doesn't diagnose malingering, so one can suspect it or detect it, but it isn't an illness. And it's the intentional production, feigning of physical or mental health symptoms for gain. There are related concepts, so the, the obvious ones are factitious disorders. And the classic example of that that people will probably be most familiar with is Munchausen syndrome. So Munchausen, an individual is also intentionally feigning sy symptoms, but in that instance, they're doing it for psychopathological reasons. They're doing it for internal gain. The example now would be to be a patient or to have procedures done on oneself. It is somewhat of a blurred line, and this has been challenged by some authors. There have been discussions on one's social status may affect the diagnosis. There are examples that perhaps blur a boundary. For example, if one feigned symptoms for revenge, is that an internal or an external phenomenon? But certainly malingering, one is generally considered to be feigning for external gain, such as avoiding prison sentence, avoiding military duty, to help with an asylum claim for financial compensation, that sort of process. Thank you. Professor Ricks. Thank you. Um, I think it's important to realise that there is no legal definition of malingering. There was a case in which the judge had to consider the status of malingering and he pointed out, first of all, that the, word, the verb malinger is just an ordinary English word defined in the new shorter Oxford English Dictionary 
as meaning, quote, pretend or exaggerate illness in order to escape due to your work, unquote. He uh, was quite pleased with the uh, expert psychiatric witness in that case and said, to her credit, as it seems to me, uh, she does not agree that malingering is a psychological condition. And he then uh, uh, took issue with uh, what was then the the DSM uh, 4TR classification and said that uh, its definition appears to uh, expand on the uh, dictionary definition and to classify what is in fact dishonest behaviour as a, a psychological condition. So for the clinician who's faced with the possibility of malingering, what are the challenges of determining real as opposed to malingered symptomatology? I think a core challenge in psychiatry beyond malingering is the fact that we rely on individuals' descriptions of internal psychological phenomena. We don't have, we certainly don't have valid, reliable biomarkers at this time that people are investigating it, so we rely on what people tell us. We can't do blood tests, we can't do scans, certainly not with any degree of accuracy in determining if someone has an illness or not. So we are faced with the situation that we have to listen to what people tell us and interpret that to see if we think it is real or feigned. Of of course, when we do an assessment, there are multiple parts to it. So we hear a history, someone tells us their story and they tell us the symptoms they've had and they tell us what's caused it, what makes it better, what makes it worse and so forth. We have a past history from them and perhaps from their their records. We can get collateral information, which could be from another source, from a friend, a relative, a GP, and so forth. And then we also have our mental state examination, which is our ability to assess based on our experience and our expertise, their symptoms. So a difficulty for us is it is the summation of those complex issues without an objective biomarker that gives, I think, psychiatry its particular challenge in detecting malingering. And malingering is not just uh, one single homogeneous concept. What are the different types of malingering um, and also what are the most common diagnostic categories where malingering is an issue? I think that's a good point. I suspect some people may imagine that malingering is just where one invents a, a, a symptom. In in 1962, Lippmann came up with four categories. So invention is one type, where one says there are symptoms where there are none. A second type, which is certainly more common in some conditions, is exaggeration. So where there are real symptoms, but their extent or nature is exaggerated. There's perseverance, where one had symptoms before, but they've gone, but the individual says they're still present. And there's transference, where symptoms are ascribed to the wrong cause, so that one has an injury, psychological or physical, it says something else caused it. So they are the major types. In terms of diagnoses, I think it's very hard to know because we don't have very good epidemiological data because it's based on people lying, and how would one know? So we have to, we can infer from issues such as medical legal reports, there is research on malingering, expert opinions have been asked, but it's actually very, very difficult. And the prevalence or instance of malingering, it, it varies between conditions, and it often depends, I think, on what is presenting, where, where is the external gain, where is compensation arising. From that point of view, I think there are some 
common presentations, PTSD is probably the classic difficulty individuals face, now clinicians face, but we've, in the paper we mentioned some, so adult ADHD can be with psychosis and somatoform and so forth. So I, th I think epidemiologically it's difficult to state with confidence, but there are some scenarios more likely to present to a clinician or certainly to present to an expert witness. And faced with the possibility of malingering, how should clinicians tailor their assessment or their particular approaches that clinicians can use? In one sense, it goes back to the basics of a psychiatric history and doing good things well. So I think if a clinician is concerned about it, I think it will go back to very basics about good note-keeping, about being very clear about symptoms that might or might not be present, recording this very well. So I think good note-keeping is essential. But I think an open approach is really, really important too. From, from a detecting point of view, there, there is evidence to suggest that if there are open-ended questions at the start and one engages well, it, it encourages people to speak openly. But I, I think another important thing to check throughout is to, to watch for what are called confirmation biases. So there's a danger that if you suspect malingering, that you will track that down at the exclusion of, of other avenues. So I think going over one's approach throughout the assessment, making sure that even if one suspects it, that one is open to other possibilities, and conducts as thorough an interview as possible. I, I think it's about trying to get as much detail on symptom history and, depending on the condition, being quite thorough in what one's looking for. Thank you. Professor Ricks, would you like to add to that? The first uh, point I'd make is that um, malingering should always uh, be considered, even in the ordinary uh, clinical context but uh, the more so when people are being seen who are uh, involved in court proceedings, whether they be criminal uh, or civil. And uh, as Derek says, it's about history taking, mental state examination, uh, records in the medical legal context, witness statements, and the important point is to evaluate all of that evidence which may or may not include particular psychometric tests and to see uh, if there is consistency or inconsistency. In fact it's likely to be a continuum. Uh, does uh, the history match up with the mental state findings? Does the history that the patient or subject gives uh, match with what uh, family members or uh, other uh, people perhaps completely uh, or more independent have put into witness statements. Are there records, uh, if, for example applications uh, for benefits in which symptoms are reported differently uh, or the effects are of those symptoms are described differently. It's all about uh, finding a point uh, on that scale of consistency to inconsistency which enables you to d decide with what degree of confidence you can make the actual psychiatric diagnosis. Thank you. So it's not always clear-cut and it's about a, a process of understanding and of, and of judgment. What symptoms do you commonly see in malingering and are there features that could be considered pathognomic? I think it's really important to say the answer is no. There are no symptoms that are pathonomic of malingering, and I think there's a danger of looking for this. I think 
if we take people with genuine mental health problems, we all recognise there's a wide spectrum of presentations. And, of course, that's made more complex and challenging when we think about people from different backgrounds and uh, different ethnicities or locations or language problems. There's so many ways people can present. I, I think there's a danger. We, we have a quote in the paper the, from Faust that said to, be, to watch for what he calls, and the quote was, educated guesses or clinical lore. And I think there's a danger about trying to find the, the, the symptom that proves or disproves malingering. The paper does include tables on hallucination data and on PTSD about symptoms that may be more or less typical. But I think, again, I, would, I think Keith's point was well made earlier on, that it's about the continuum of plausibility. So I, I think one has to recognise, first of all, there's a wide spectrum in genuine presentations, and so it is with malingering too. So I think it's the summation of the history presenting complaint, the mental state, all the data available. So I, I would move away from trying to find the symptom or symptoms that prove or disprove malingering. Mm -hmm. You've already talked about the dearth of biomarkers um, that we have available in clinical practice, but are there more specific tools other than just the standard clinical assessment that are available to aid in this assessment process? There are. There are psychometric tests, and I think if one suspects, and certainly from an expert witness point of view, I, I think the use of psychometric tests is important. Uh, and in my own practice, I wouldn't undertake an assessment where I considered malingering without their use. There are various different types. So the first obvious type is a clinical scale that we would use in everyday practice. So if you were looking at someone with depression, you might use a BDI. If you were looking at PTSD, you might use a PTSD scale. So that's a scale that might help support or weaken the case for a given diagnosis. A challenge with them is that there, there's very good evidence that people are able to manipulate them. If you wish to feign an illness, it's usually relatively easy to see which boxes to tick. I think there's another problem about response bias where people, this, this is the idea of exaggeration, where people can, rather than make up symptoms, they can just amplify their extent. So, I th But uh, nevertheless, I think it's useful to have that information because going back to the idea of summing up all the data, it's adding in the consistency or inconsistency. So you've got presentation and the history, you've got the mental state, and the first set is psychometric data for or against the diagnosis. After that, there are various tests that can be applied. So some people will use more general psychometric tests like MMPI to see the consistency or inconsistency. But as they're quite general... I think most of the time they're not as good to use. And after that, we have two types of malingering specific tests. In cognitive tests specifically, so that's if there's a, concern, there's a concern about a problem with memory or cognition, we can use what are called symptom validity tests. These are forced choice tests, so an individual can't say, I don't know. They must respond, and they're typically two choices. They have to pick one. And these tests measure effort. They don't prove malingering. Nothing proves malingering. It's not a decision for the clinician in one sense. But they give a sense of the effort one is putting into a cognitive test, and a clinician will come out with a probabilistic response of how, uh, how that fits it with cognitive impairment. The second type are malingering-specific tests that are not for cognition. So they're different tests, such as the SIMS and the SIRS and so forth. 
In my own practice, I use the SIMS, but there are many different tests. It's quite a general one. It's not for any given diagnosis. What these tests tend to do, the, the, one doesn't tell an individual that, that they're undergoing malingering tests, but they present implausible symptoms. So they, they, they're pan-diagnostic. It could be used for suspected PTSD or ADHD or psychosis, and they list unusual symptoms that someone trying to feign illness might think occurred in mental ill health, or they will present symptoms that people think wouldn't occur. And again, one accumulates a response bias in that that helps support or undermine a diagnosis. Great. Thank you very much, Professor Ricks. I simply uh, want to add a note of caution about uh, tests. If in the medical legal setting there is reliance on these tests, then uh, the introduction of that evidence will be subjected to tests of what is called evidentiary reliability. Best illustrated uh, with the American uh, approach in the case uh, of Dobert and Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, where the, the following four questions are posed in relation to uh, tests that are used uh, by experts in their evidence. One, has the technique been tested in actual field conditions? Has the technique been subjected to peer review and publication? Two, what is the known or potential rate of error? Three, do standards exist for the control of the technique's operation? Four, has the technique been generally accepted within the relevant scientific community? You see, uh, Experts will be cross-examined about these tests, and to paraphrase a barrister who was actually writing about uh, cross-examination on evidence involving clinical practice guidelines, he says, cross-examination of the expert may extend to the scope of the tests, their development, known exceptions to their application, and whether any bo responsible body of medical thought recommends a different approach. You have to be familiar with all of the literature uh, on that particular test if you are going to stand up to that sort of cross-examination. Well, thank you both for your enlightening and pragmatic description about how clinicians can approach the highly complex topic of malingering. So that concludes the first podcast, which is looking at how one can go about clinically assessing possible malingering and the second podcast will go on to look at the issues which surround medico-legal reporting. So Professor Ricks and Dr Tracy, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.